Today is Sunday, October 25th, 2015, and this is episode 137 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Hey, Jerry. How are you, sir? I am so good it hurts. <laughs> I, I heard, though, you have a leaky lawn. <laughs> There's a leak somewhere under there. <laughs> I'm afraid of what I'm going to find when they dig it up, but... We'll see. Uh, that sounds expensive. It could be you finally will get validation that you're actually your house is built on an Indian burial ground. I think is what will really happen. That's that's true. It would explain where all the water's going, and the tree attacking you from time to time. We, we we don't really talk about that in public. I know, I know. I'm sorry. Anyway, anyhow, so yeah, two just two short months, uh, two short shopping months until uh, Christmas, friends. So just, it's true. You know, Sixty day warning. Before we get started, the uh, thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employer. Um, there's a couple of things I wanted to start off with. Uh, I, I finally got through, I believe, most or all of uh, my email backlog, and I had a couple of things I wanted to mention based on that. Uh, the first one comes from Lance, and Lance was, is talking about a uh, topic we had a couple of shows back about spear phishing and email spoofing and he pointed out that uh, it, it's a pretty simple task these days and something that should really be done for most people or most organizations to not allow inbound email that appears to come from your domain uh, come from outside your your uh, your network and so you should be looking for the envelope sender and the from address to match your domain and not accept that from outside this I would hope most organizations are doing that, but if you're not, you know, there you go. That's something to look for. Yeah, I would wager a lot aren't. I've also heard folks uh, talk about adding an external, like the word external to the subject line Yeah. of things that come in from the outside. Um, it's, a, it's a good idea. I, I, I can hear the executives already saying, wait a minute, what if that breaks a critical email that comes in? Right, so there's always that balance you got to What about my mail rules? Won't you think of my mail rules? <laughs> and certainly it doesn't stop every incident of phishing or every, you know, there's a lot of phishing that is not necessarily pretending to be an internal user. They might be an external user or, you know, posing as some sort of vendor. Yeah, I think that's becoming more and more of the case is, um, you know, I think one of the, in one of the most recent ones we talked about, it was a purported reporter, right? I think that was the Bitcoin right. uh, BitPay, I believe. It was a reporter who had, email, had emailed the CFO and uh, an alleged reporter. So, yeah, um, but, you know, this is, um, you know, kind of a, a very simple thing that you should probably be doing anyway. So there you go. Uh, the other email we got came from Matt, and uh, Matt pointed out in response to some of our cyber insurance discussions that in the UK, and I was not aware of this, this was was really interesting to me, in the UK, 
there's a government-sponsored program related to cyber insurance. And so organizations can uh, can engage an assessor, uh, some kind of a qualified assessor, who uh, who takes the uh, the organization through what what uh, Matt described as a lightweight ISO twenty seven thousand review, and assuming you pass, you actually qualify for a twenty five thousand um, pound know, insurance policy. And then you know you I read there the the link to I think it was AIG's website. You, know, you can get additional coverage at your own cost but that was pretty interesting um yeah i was completely unaware of that as well so and uh, don't know i mean it's kind of i'm never necessarily a huge fan of a centralized government-run program but uh it could be i i would not be surprised if we saw some interesting sort of similar things proposed in the u.s in the near future yeah it's not a you know it's i, I Number one, it's not a ton of coverage, right? It's twenty five thousand pounds, so it's probably what, right. like you know, forty thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars at most. Um, so it's not, again, it's not a huge amount of coverage. It probably doesn't cost all that much, but I think the it, I, I can imagine that it it is an incentive, right? That um, yeah, I wonder if it's like a BBB rating, like it's a it's a vote of confidence exactly. for an organization. Exactly. Yeah. So. Uh, because you know, realistically speaking, it takes a lot of time and energy to, if you're not already doing it natively, to prepare for an audit like that and to meet the audit requirements. So for forty thousand dollars U.S., that's probably not worth the effort, uh, unless you're already there natively, or there's some other sort of trickle down effects of having that that coverage. Yeah, exactly right. I'm, I think. Said another way, it's probably not the thing that's going to incent you to spend, you know, lots and lots of money on a, on a security program if you're not already spending it. So, but you know, it may it may incent you to close some holes that you you may not otherwise. So, uh, so what you're saying is your mom should really take that certification. Oh out. my god! Somehow I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> Many people go there. Jesus. Moving on. Uh, so our, uh, our first story for tonight uh, comes from actually this podcast. We're actually looking for a new co-host. Uh, oh. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, no, I'm kidding. Uh, our first story comes from the Erratasec blog. Uh, Rob Graham wrote this, uh, I think it was last Friday, and the title is Dumb, Dumber, and Cybersecurity. And uh, it's, it's a very short but uh, but pretty, I thought, humorous article. And, and uh, he points out that there is this uh, 10 Steps to Protect Yourself uh, article on biz journals, which apparently came from Microsoft. And uh, it's kind of the normal security infosec platitude type top 10 things you'll see. But focused at, at business, not individuals, right? Correct. That's right. Okay. That's right. You know, it's things like, uh, you know, identify your data and protect your workstations and you know it's it, it's it's things like that uh, with with really no depth and then he goes on to point out that um you know if you go uh, at the bottom of that article there is a link to a survey like a uh, i think it's called the cybersecurity iq quiz and they, he, rob kind of rails on the fact that uh, they point out that you shouldn't be sh- they say that you shouldn't share your passwords with anybody, but in fact, you know, that's really not valid advice because courts have found over and over again that uh, you 
as a employee are obligated to provide your passwords to your management. For so, your corporate assets. For your corporate assets, that's right. There, there was a lot of controversy about, you know, hey, if you're an employee, provide your Facebook password, that sort of thing. And we're not saying you should do that. No, not not that. That's right. But this is this is very business centric, right? So, um, but you know, the, I, I think the the point is that not 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 necessarily around the quiz, but around the top ten steps that you know, it's it's these kinds of high level platitude like flybys that are contributing in in major ways to the continued bad security practices rather than focusing on you know the actual problems like as rob points out phishing and password sharing and um bah, the oasp you know sqli right yeah, yeah the, oasp top 10 couldn't think of the word oasp <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Damn, getting old. So it's true. It's true. Well, you know, I noticed that you're you're limping just a little more every time you walk into the studio. That's yeah. We'll get your infosec walker soon. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll have one of those uh, automatic wheelchairs soon. <laughs> Anyhow, um, you know, I guess again, point being that organizations really ought to be focusing on things that matter and not things that vendors are wanting to help you with, like Microsoft. Well, and this is something we've said over and over on this show, and because it bears repeating over and over that, that the vendors who are trying to sell you something define the problem in terms of their marketing and their education, their outreach, as the problem they can solve, not necessarily the problem that you have. And we have to do a better job of getting better neutral, non-biased, fact-based education about what's really causing problems for organizations and what they really should be doing to solve them. And then that should feed into finding technical controls or procedure controls or people controls or whatever it is that you want to do to apply. Not, hey, uh, every you know InfoSec vendor slide deck has to start by defining the problem, which I swear to any of you hold holy. If I have to sit through one more of those of a vendor trying to tell me about the problem after I've been doing this for 20 years, I may start kicking them out of my office. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, that you hit on it too, that unfortunately, I think a lot of organizations, especially the bigger ones, have taken this tact of relying heavily on vendors to provide education to their employees. And, and so it's it's like a you know it's a vicious circle. But like anything, if it's free, it means you're the product. Well, that's exactly right. And, and so I, they start controlling the narrative, and and I don't know that people even realize this is happening until we're deep into it. And so you could say, well, what about Gardner? What about Sands? What about some of these? Well, you know, they're not bad places to look. But again, how does Gardner make their money? Right. Uh, yep. so I, you know, to be honest with you, I, I, not that it's the perfect answer, but something like the Verizon data breach report, I think is one of the better sources of information to really get a non-biased view of what's going on. Sure. Verizon has their own agenda for putting that out, uh, but all things being equal, something like that, I think is a much better way to say, okay, these are the real problems as they exist right now. How do we solve them? Yeah, 
Absolutely. So, uh, it, and by the way, Rob Graham is a very entertaining writer. He pisses people off a lot. He trolls and has fun with trolling, but he's incredibly sharp. Uh, I would say he's a friend of the show more that we're friends of his. He probably thinks we're little peons that bother him, but, uh, (laughs) he is worth following. He has a very insightful and different view of things that I think is worth considering. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. So, um, let's move on to our next story, which comes from business insider. The title is Talk Talk didn't use basic security that could have protected its four million customers' details. For shame! Can you believe this? So, so the story here is that Talk Talk, uh, who 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 announced that they were breached uh, this past week. Um, By the way, for those who don't know, because I actually didn't, Talk Talk is a UK-based broadband provider. Yeah, they're they're you know. So there you go. Just little, kind of like a little mini Comcast, apparently. Uh, apparently, but mm-hmm. you know, less evil, maybe. I don't know. I don't know either. But anyway, for just because Jerry doesn't like to give background, and just assumes everybody knows what he knows. Talk Talk UK broadband provider. Continue on. That's why. Story. That's why I keep you here. Sometimes. Sometimes. Till you start to get lippy. Well, you know, what can I say? All right. So anyhow. uh, Thank you very much for that background. Uh, Talk Talk did get breached. Apparently, by the way, this is the third or fourth time in the past year. So, You're just going to edit it out of the show anyway. They're 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 going to. Uh, they've got to be pretty used to this by now, right? Um, <laughs> well, their incident response handbooks could probably get a little more refined. I would uh, I would hope so. So uh, so anyway, um, the article here points out that in fact, apparently, their data was not encrypted and. That's a, you know that's a really terrible thing because uh, without the data being cr- encrypted, it was susceptible to being stolen. And um, you know, wow, they really dropped they really really dropped the ball. And and by the way, you know, so that that kind of well, you, you go ahead. You were going to say something. No, this is something we hear over and over again on all these breaches. What was encrypted? What wasn't encrypted? Right. It is a common refrain we're hearing. Whenever these breaches come up, yeah, exactly, and so that that actually dovetails into the next uh, article we have, uh, which actually is uh, from the Graham Cooley blog, and it is titled "Talk Talk Was Hacked," but it's silly to ask if the data was encrypted. Um, and this article goes on to point out that it's actually kind of um, trivial, nonsensical, unimportant, irrelevant, whatever uh, that the data wasn't encrypted because. Given the way in which it was stolen, which apparently was through SQLI, uh, that encryption really wouldn't have, have mattered. The, the way most organizations would encrypt data like this is using full disk, whole disk encryption, which is great, as they point out. If your data is on a laptop that you leave in a train, or you're worried about someone smashing through your data center wall, running in and grabbing hard drives and running away with, uh, you know, with, with your data... That is awesome. However, if you're just using whole disk encryption and on a on a booted system, you know the the system's gonna just happily give unencrypted data to whoever. And and I think they they point out that you know even more than that, even more sophisticated levels of encryption are probably still going to uh, to be susceptible. So you know if you're uh, if your if your web app is vulnerable to SQLI. And even if you're using you know field level in, uh, encryption, 
but your web app is authorized to be able to you know, retrieve the data, it's going to happily give whoever, you know, unencrypted data back. So, right. again, what, what, what have you accomplished there? So Yeah, it's not like there's somebody manually typing in the password to decrypt the data every time the website wants to grab it for something. Yeah. It's, it's an automatic trust relationship. So... If even so, even if you had file level uh, encryption and you had table level encryption going on with your database server, you could potentially say, "Hey, it restricts somebody who, who maybe popped the box and got root on the box from being able to grab those files and decrypt them easily." But again, you have to look at exactly as you said: how is this encryption set up? What is it really meant to mitigate as a threat? So, encryption for the sake of encryption doesn't stop everything. And so you have to think about the vector of the attack and what's coming in. And as he points out so eloquently, if you're an authorized user, uh, or I should say if, you're, if you are spoofing as an authorized user or you have uh, breached the credentials of an authorized user, <laughs> that application knows no difference and will do exactly what it's programmed to do and decrypt the data as it hands it to you. That's right. That's right. So it's sort of – I mean I'm not trying to pick on the press right now, but I'm going to. They have gotten in their head that encryption solves all problems. And so they're on this mantra of, oh, was it encrypted? How did they encrypt it? Why was it encrypted? And I think it's a more sophisticated conversation than that, or it's a more complicated conversation than that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, so so that, that takes us into the to the third article about this, which comes from Krebs on Security, and the, the title of that one is Talk Talk Hackers Demand 80000 pounds in bitcoin and uh, this this goes into as you pointed out before the show this article goes into a little more detail about what actually happened and apparently the uh, the alleged attackers have posted some of the the data online and you know it's is a you know a threat asking for a, a ra- 80,000 pound ransom uh so that they don't release the the rest of the data uh, which you know, by the way, has its own. That's a whole other discussion, right? Whether whether you want to pay that ransom or not, because if you pay it, there's really no guarantee that they're not going to release it anyway. Nor is there actually any guarantee that they're they're the only ones that have it. Uh, so so that's um, you know, that's certainly a, a big problem. But apparently, in as as uh, Krebs points out in here, the data that was stolen. It contains names, addresses, dates of birth, phone numbers, email addresses, uh, talk talk account information, credit card details, and or bank details, which is uh, really amazing. The the thing that that struck me, especially those, those last last few things, you know, credit card numbers and bank details. Um, I wonder if there's a really good reason for that kind of data to be stored. Uh, online, you know, on on the production internet-facing system, right? I mean, I I understand that you generally are going to have to have that data somewhere in order to be able to process your your transactions, but I'm not sure that you know that that data probably doesn't need to be online and accessible. And so, I suspect this is where you know the convenience of of IT starts to creep in and intersect with security. Because it's probably very convenient to have all of that data attached to one master record rather than trying to separate it out into different systems. Uh, but, you know, these that's the opportunity here, here, right? If that data wasn't in the database, they couldn't have stole it. 
Yeah, and and deeper in the article, uh, so Talk Talk said that's what was accessed. The the guys who are posting sample data are saying uh, it was more than that. Uh, years at the current address, month at current address, home and mobile telephone number, employer, employment title, employment location, employer's phone number, as well, uh, which is and bank information, which is. You're starting to get into some pretty seriously useful things there in terms of uh, identity theft and and whatnot. But a- anyway, back to your point. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and certainly, this is a a convenience thing. It's it, if you're the data scientist or architect designing this out. Sadly, and and often these guys are not thinking about breaches when they're designing this. They're thinking about ease of use, convenience, scalability, efficiency. You know, all those things. Right. And here's the other thing I thought really interesting. So this isn't verified yet, but but Krebs is usually pretty damn accurate, so I trust it. But uh, he's saying that according to his source, the intrusion started with a SQL injection, as we talked about, uh, but was also uh, coincident with a denial of service attack. That sought to prevent legitimate users from visiting the targeted site and may also have been uh, there as a distraction for the IT and IT security teams, which we're seeing more and more. We're seeing DOS is used as a distraction technique or as a aid to a further uh, breach of some, some variety. Yeah. So it's one of those things that uh, we've said this a couple times on the show as well. Hey, uh, you may want to keep some folks in reserve to be watching everything else when your security team's off fighting a DOS. Yeah. And in fact, it perk up your senses when when and if you do fall victim to a, a, a denial of service attack because you know that may be the cover right so that may be your trigger right. to go you know to, to go start looking for what other things might be happening so one other thing i thought was interesting uh going not getting too far off the rails here but in the story they they talk about how a, re- a vulnerability was reported in the video section of talk talk's website uh on a website called xssposed.org, exposed, uh, you know, basic cross-site scripting post, but pronounced exposed.org, a site that operates as a sort of public clearinghouse for information about unpatched website vulnerabilities. So I find that interesting, and I would say as uh, an organization or as a blue team guy, you may want to be watching for your organization to pop up posted on Exposed. Yeah, Absolutely. And in fact, I think there are uh, commercial services who will do that for you, by the way. Yeah. And one other thing I'll say about Krebs, completely off topic, but on topic for Krebs, is he did a Reddit Ask Me Anything interview, uh, I guess, two days ago, Friday. That was pretty interesting. So it's worth taking a look at and reading through. Yeah, it was. Uh, that was pretty good. Um, I think this this in this article, he also does, he tries to do some attribution of the, the uh, potential attacker, right? Well, North Korea, right? Um, no, no, actually. No? I thought it was always North Korea. It's uh, uh, somebody with the Twitter name, well, allegedly, uh, <laughs> at, at Fearful, uh, who apparently resides in the UK. So, But there must be a Russian or Chinese or North Korean connection somehow. There's got to be, right? Only nation states could do anything. To- totally. Apparently. Totally. All right, so moving on, uh, speaking of nation states, uh, the next story comes from securityweek.com, and the title is Hacking Impact Short-Lived according to Sony boss. So uh, there was big news this past week that Sony apparently settled a uh, a series of lawsuits 
uh, with its employees and uh, is going to be providing or paying $10,000 to each employee whose personal detail or personal information was stolen uh, and also paying for data protection and other legal fees that uh, employees might incur due to the breach. And uh, you know, basically, the, the the point here is that Sony's really heavily downplaying the aggregate impact to their business from this attack, which uh, I, I find quite interesting, and is becoming more of a you know more of an interesting discussion point because it's 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 kind of been the um, you know that the understanding or the expectation of many infosec people that, you know, a big breach like that is, is, uh, an existential, uh, event for an organization. And by the way, it's hard to imagine something worse than what happened to Sony, right? It's, they got, they got owned every way possible. And, um, and, you know, here they are saying, well, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. It's interesting. Part of me wants to say, this is probably an accurate statement by Sony and as difficult as it may be to say it as somebody in the InfoSec industry, perhaps getting hacked is not the end of the world as we know it, as we all like to say it is. But then part of me says there could also be a PR angle here. Well, I'm sure there is. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear that they are, um, I mean, even going back to the event itself, when when Kevin Mandia issued the the now fateful uh, email, right, about them not being able to prevent it. So, I'm 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 quite sure, as a media company, they have their own view of how to how to play this. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I think that there's. We often say a bad guys only have to be right once, and the good guys have to be right every time, but. Honestly, maybe not. I, I don't know. There's there's a thought percolating in my head that I can't quite articulate here. That this spawns. I may have to think about it a little bit. But yeah, I'm not saying our job isn't important. I'm not saying we shouldn't keep doing it. But as we are starting to see this new phase of massive breaches, it's interesting to watch the fallout of these and how sometimes you know mm-hmm. things go on, things continue. Yeah. And you know the, that's not to say that there haven't been, um, you know, that I, I don't know if it's possibly concentrated in the smaller organizations because we've seen, for instance, Diginotar, right? Um, but uh, to an extent, though, you know, that was they went out of business. Um, but I, but I wonder how much of that was, you know, because. They they were just uh, they had their their ball taken away and they couldn't play ball anymore. I mean that that was. Well, I wonder too if it's the type of vertical. If you're a, a right, a pure tech based company, you're more likely to have an existential issue with a hack than a non tech company. Right. Well, there was the um, I forget the name. Of the, they all run together. The the cloud based company who had all of their. Uh, their backups and the, the source code company, right? Oh, right, 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 right. Uh, uh, they had all of their their AWS images wiped out at the same time. Their backups, everything. They were like, they came in Monday morning and there was nothing left. Uh, so you know that they, they went out of business. Um, but you know, b- barring that, it it just it seems like 
there aren't a lot of organizations actually going out of business as a result of this. And I do wonder how that plays into, uh, you know, the the investment perspective of of InfoSec. So. Plus the cyber insurance aspect, which we keep talking about. Yeah, absolutely. If at the end of the day, at a executive level, at a 20,000-foot level, that this is a a temporary issue that can be mitigated financially. Anyway. Yep. Yep. You're, it's interesting. You're right. All right. So, um, so moving on to our last story for tonight. I know uh, this is near and dear to your heart. comes from Threat Post, and the title is European a- Aviation Agency Warns of Aircraft Hacking. Oh, my God. Hackers on this plane. Uh, no, what's what's the right what's the right phrase? Um, get these motherfucking hackers off this motherfucking plane. Is that right? I'm sick of all these motherfucking hackers on all these motherfucking planes, or something like that. I don't know. Oh, Do I look geez. like Samuel Jackson to you? We both screwed it up, didn't we? <laughs> We're old. Anyway. Uh, so I. First of all, I, I need to owe credit. Somebody gave pointed this to me uh, on on Twitter, a fan of the show, and I have failed to make a note of who pointed out to me, and I'm a terrible podcaster's result, and I apologize for that. But somebody pointed it out, and this got very little pr- play. In fact, I didn't talk about it when it first pointed out because I only found one reference to this, and it didn't have a lot of information. I was like, eh, I don't know if this is legit. And so it started to bubble up, and I'm starting to find some more about it, and uh, it's interesting that this didn't get more play in the U.S. given everything they have with Chris Roberts and all that stuff. But here's the long and short of it. So a paid pen test or paid security assessment was done um, by the European Aviation Safety Agency, which is kind of basically like our NTSB, if you will. And uh, the guy they hired to do the basically the pen test is also a commercial pilot, so he knew a lot about aviation and the aviation industry. And what he did was he exploited vulnerabilities in what's called the ACARS system, uh, which stands for Aircraft Communications Addressing and Reporting System. And this, in essence, is a basic text messaging system uh, between planes and ground. And you might remember the ACARS system also came into play a lot for some of the recent uh, aviation issues we had, uh, like uh, Malaysian Air 447, which we never found, and, and Air France uh, that crashed in, in the Atlantic. So ACARS is really a system to send communication back and forth. And it's, in essence, almost like a text messaging system. And what he did was uh, there, there's really no good validation and sort of uh, – you can spoof messages to ACARS very easily, is, is the bottom line. And that's what he found out he could do. He could easily, uh, within within a few minutes, they say, uh, basically spoofed an ACARS message that the plane thought was legitimate and passed on to the crew as legitimate, uh, which is a bit of a risk, uh, especially when, when one of the biggest things ACARS does is typically feed in approved flight plans. So when you're filing for a flight plan, and, you, and if you're a, an airliner with an ACARS system, You've actually got a dispatcher for the airline that that has filed the flight plan and has gotten clearance for that flight plan, which is a series of waypoints that the that the um, in essence the aircraft is expected to follow unless told later by air traffic control. and And often these are fed to you via the ACAR system, which is then fed into the um, basically the flight management system, which controls the automatic pilot. So the biggest risk, really in my mind, is being able to um, confuse the crew with fake messages 
and perhaps uh, feed them a fake, I guess for lack of a better term, flight plan. But that the thing about the flight plan is they only get it at a very specific time as they're sitting on the ground uh, and it would probably be pretty evident to a crew that they're getting a fake flight plan. And it'd probably be pretty evident uh, very quickly that that the system had been compromised, you would think. But somebody could be very, very clever. It's kind of like fishing. If they're very, very, very clever, they could confuse a crew. But they can't control the aircraft through it. They can't take over the aircraft, and they can't do anything other than just send text messages that look like they're coming from um, – you know the business or the company or perhaps the some some aspect of air traffic control might be sending them an ACARS message perhaps uh, it, this is a system that was designed in 78 it had no security in mind it had no authentication in mind you know the, so and it's being phased out over time so it's interesting and and you know this i think is a much more realistic way to quote-unquote, do aircraft hacking, and it's something we talked about when a lot of the original Chris Roberts allegations came out. So and, so in, in this in this article down at the bottom, they, they talk about, I think they call it CSAR. So uh, this, the, the specific sentence is, tomorrow, with the introduction of CSAR, I guess that's how you say it, and the possibility for air traffic control to directly give instructions to the aircraft control system, this risk will be multiplied. Is that... What, what's the what's the deal with that, man? Uh, you know, I'll be honest. I don't know a lot about CSAR. It is only in Europe uh, right now. It's um, we are in the uh, the process of doing a massive upgrade on our sort of ATC and aviation control system in the U.S. But I don't know that we've got something similar to CSAR. I need to do a little research on that. And I, I noticed this article just before we kind of went live today, so I will look into it and I will learn. But through context of the article, it sounds like a more advanced version of ACARS. Uh, so, I don't know. We'll see. I, I, I need to find out more. I'm, I'm, all I can envision, by the way, is a ground control person in the bathroom with their iPad landing a commercial jet. <laughs> I think that was a Dilbert cartoon. <laughs> so, uh, so, there you go. But, so, here's the thing. One of the things that the airline industry and the aviation industry is trying to do is get away from everything being radio-based. Radio is actually a really crappy way to communicate. It's it's fraught with misunderstandings. It's, uh, you, you know, you can't multiplex very well on the same frequency. No, you when you say radio, you mean voice, right? Yes. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, voice radio, as in, you know, airliner calls the tower or the center or approach or departure. Departure talks to them, you know, over voice. A bunch of planes on the same frequency with call letters and uh, misunderstandings happen all the time. So there's this concept of if we can get to automated text-based and computer-based ATC commands going back and forth and requests, there'd be less misunderstandings. You could uh, have much more asynchronous communication and synchronous communication as well. You could talk to many people at the same time. Uh, you weren't limited by you know, a single congested frequency for a certain sector of the sky with a certain controller. You could do more complex and faster communication uh, between the aircraft and the ground. So there is a move towards that, and I think that's what the CSAR system is, but do not quote me on that because I've done no research, but I know from uh, you know, just reading the trade papers and the articles in the U.S. that people want to move in that direction in the U.S. as well. Uh, the challenge is with airliners and, and, and these sorts of things is you really have to move as, as, a, as a world because of the international nature of, of aviation. Right. So uh, I'm not 
intimately familiar with CSAR, but I think it is something only in in Europe right now. But I hate to say it. I don't know. I need to look into it. Anyway, point being, we want to get away from using radio voice comms if we can. No, it makes sense. At least for a lot of the routine that, stuff. That was what the movie Airplane taught me, by the way. <laughs> Striker! <laughs> Hardly even know. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I thought it taught us it was the wrong week to quit sniffing glue. Well, there's that too. And that you like lighter movies. Well, hey. Spent some time in a Turkish prison. What can I say? <laughs> All right. Anyway, I just wanted to point out an article about substantial, real aviation-related threat, as opposed to some of the FUD and fear-mongering and craziness that sometimes gets reported. No, it was good. It was, it was interesting that they uh, that one of these uh, organizations actually commissioned a pen test, right, from a from a, a pilot who apparently is also a hacker. So there you go. So that that was our last story. Uh, thank you very much again for listening to the show. Uh, thank you very much to those people who have donated to our Patreon campaign. Cannot thank you enough for that. That uh, is very, very helpful to us. Uh, also, thank you to those people who have left us uh, such kind reviews on iTunes. Um, I'm always amazed at what people say. Uh, you know, we talked last week about the SQL injection one, which you know it's still funny. Yes. Um, thank you very much. And uh, you can, if you want to find links to the stories that we talked about today, you can find them on our website www.defensivesecurity.org. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg, that's L-E-R-G. And if you are not already following him, you should. And you can follow me on Twitter at MaliciousLink, just like it sounds. And uh, with that, anything else? No, we're good. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening, and uh, look forward to talking to you next week. Take care. Bye-bye. TLS is just turning into the biggest f***ing nightmare for IT shops. I agree. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.